If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 19 to 26 of John 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's holy word. Brief prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word and that you would apply its teaching to our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll remember the context of this passage and all the prejudicial boundaries that Jesus crosses in interacting with a Samaritan and then a man interacting with a woman. You'll remember that at the well, Jesus offers this woman living water. And the living water is essentially the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus explains that in John chapter 7. So he offers her that living water. And if you look at verse 15, she doesn't understand what he offers her. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she doesn't understand the spiritual conversation that Jesus was having with her. And so Jesus puts his finger on the spot because her issue is, is her sin is blinding her to the spiritual realities that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus says, go call your husband, bring him here. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you've spoken truly. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And I think it's pretty interesting, her response in in verse 19. She just says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. You, You have spoken truly. And then she just asks this question. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim, the mountain that the Samaritans worshiped on. But she says, but you say that in Jerusalem, talking about Mount Moriah, where the Jews worshiped, is the place where people ought to worship. So what happens is, is in this woman's reply and in Jesus's response to her, Jesus gives one of the most comprehensive theological arguments and uh doctrines for worship in the Gospels. Now, Jesus is going to talk about the Lord's Supper and about baptism, about a number of aspects about worship, but really what he gives us here is an entire theology of worship. If you look at verse 24, 
or excuse me, verse 23, he says, for the father is seeking such people to worship him. This is God's heart. God's heart is to send out evangelists so that people would believe and worship him. Worship is the apex of Christianity. It's, it's the highest point of Christianity. It's, it's why you are a Christian. Did anybody watch the football game last night or football over the weekend? Okay, I see, see quite a few hands. Now I, saw, I know some of y'all were at that soccer match, but football game, what's the most important thing in a football game? What's the most important thing? Defense, defense wins championships. You have the right quarterback, right coach, all those, you know, people talk about all those things. The most important thing in a football game is the ball. You got to have a pigskin to play the football game. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had our students, we built one of those nine squares. Has any of y'all played the nine square? We built the nine square. We spent like 30 minutes putting together uh, after we'd cut all the pipes and everything and all the students were there. Then we realized we didn't have a ball. Couldn't play. Worship in the Christian life is the ball. It's the main thing. It's, it's the highest thing. That, that's the first point of the catechism, isn't it? What's the chief in a man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? So we're talking about the most important thing. And I think the issue right now in Western Christianity is that we're very man-centered. True Christianity is God-centered. God is the end of the gospel, whereas the way that many Western Christians think about the Christian life is that Jesus is there to meet our needs at the end of the day. It's, it's about us and not the glory and the honor of God. And so my passion and my heart is to work and to labor with my life to recover God-centered Christianity, to recover what real worship is, to recover a transcendent vision of God. Whenever there has been an awakening or revival, and we certainly need an awakening or revival, it has been a recovery of true, authentic worship of God. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. So everything's from him and through him and at the end to him. That's Paul's heart. It's the heart of the apostles. It's the heart of our Lord, and that should be our heart as well. So real quickly this morning, let me give you just three principles that, that we see in this text about worship. There's more, but we only have time to do three. First, the universality of worship. I want you to see the universality of worship. Look what the woman says in verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then in Jesus' response, he is going to use the word worship, Greek word proskunio, eight times. Eight times Jesus is going to 
use this word. Now, in the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using, it's translated worship, but it literally means to bow down, to prostrate yourself before a deity, to get on your knees before a god. That's what it means. So just a literal usage of it, Mark 8, 2, a leper came to Jesus and Proscunio bowed down to him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. King Herod used it when the Magi came. He said, you go find this baby and then come back so that I can go bow down to him. The Hebrew counterpart is used in the exact same way. So for example, Psalm 95.6, Psalmist says, Oh, come, let us prostrate ourselves and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. When Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, Abraham told his servants that he and Isaac were going to go on top of the mountain and bow down. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles 7.3, the chronicler says that all of the people put their noses to the pavement and bowed down before the glory of God. After the exile into Babylon, when the children of Israel come back and Ezra starts reading from the book of the law, it says that the people bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before Yahweh. And then in Nehemiah 9.6, Nehemiah says, even says that the host of heaven bows down to God. Even the angels in heaven. Read Revelation chapter 4. The 24 elders, what are they doing? They're bowing down before God. The bowing down represents that you honor and esteem the deity that you are bowing down before. Now, I say deity because even the, the other uh, groups in the land, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all, all those people, they also bow down to their gods. Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 2, the children of Israel bowing down to idols. But it's showing that you respect and that you honor and you are worshiping the, the God that you are bowing down to. Paul says in Ephesians 3.14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. So this is our expression of worship in the heart. Worship is a bowing down to God in the heart. So what this woman is asking is she's saying, look, we Samaritans, we bow down on this mountain. That's, this is where we've traditionally done it for 500 years. But you Jews say that you're to bow down in Jerusalem. What is it? And I want to pause right here, and I want you to think about this very carefully. I want you to think about the fact that here's this woman, and she's not worshiping God properly, but she's concerned about worship. Because the reality is, is that everybody is concerned about worship. Worship is a universal reality. And the reason for that is because God made us to bow down to him and worship him. 
That's why we're here. Bowing down before God was supposed to be the universal activity of man. So what this means is this, is that everywhere you go, every single person you meet, you are meeting a worshiper. Every single person. The question is, who are they worshiping? Uh, Just like we drink water, we worship. We are worshiping all the time. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1, because nowhere is this more clear, this principle of universal worship. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. I just want you to see how Paul describes this universal aspect of worship. He says this in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? And he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain? How does everybody know about God? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, you can go outside and see the reality of God. Because all of creation points to the reality of a creator. Everywhere, you're, everywhere you go, you are seeing the cosmological argument, right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 50, the heavens declare the righteousness of God. I remember one time I got stranded in Alaska. Don't ask me how. And I decided to go halibut fishing just in the, the out of Seward and got there early in the morning, got on a boat, and we basically went along the, the Alaskan coastline. And I came out, I fell asleep, came out on the deck, and I looked out and I just saw these majestic mountains coming out of the water, just coming right out of the water. And I was just awed to worship because they, each, they point to the majesty of God. And whatever it is, you, you might be looking at the intricacy of a human eyeball. All of it is pointing to the reality of God's character. All of it is meant to point and lead us to bow down before God in worship. So the fact that people don't bow down before God and worship him is not a problem with what God has made. Hear this clearly. Creation testifies truly to who God is. That revelation testifies to his holiness, his righteousness, his perfect character. It speaks clearly, but the problem is with us. The reason why people don't worship God is because we misinterpret, we distort the truth. And that's what Paul says right there in verse 18. He says, uh, he says, by their unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. So the truth is clear. Unbelievers are going out. They're, they're seeing the truth, but they suppress it. And then look at verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God. They did not give God the weightiness that was due to him or give, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you reject God in your conscience, your mind becomes more dark and more dark and more compressed and more compressed, and they become fools. Foolishness in the Bible is never about IQ power. It's always about the rejection of God. And that's what's going on today, friends. We live in a world of fools because people have rejected the revelation that has been so clearly given in creation. So they become foolish, futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So you see the exchange happening. People are worshiping, just that they're not worshiping God and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now look at verse 25, so important. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they worshiped something other than God, but they're still worshiping. So we have to understand that. We have to understand this principle of universal worship because what we're experiencing today is not a lack of worship. What we are experiencing today is a corruption of worship. We live in a culture where people are bowing down to the idols of sex, pleasure, wealth, fame. Just go look on Instagram. It's all there. Remember what Calvin said, He said, our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture our own idols. So that's the first point I want you to see, the universality of worship. The second is the object of worship. The object of worship. I want you to notice in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus' emphasis that all true worship culminates in God the Father. Notice this emphasis. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Talking about how he is bringing in a new epoch of worship in redemptive history. Then in verse 22, he says, You bow down to what you do not know. Who who, who does she not know? The Father. We bow down to what we know. Who do we know? The Father, for salvation is from the Jews. Talking about how the Jews knew the character of God through uh, his word and the covenants and and, uh, uh, the rules given in in worship and the feasts, the festivals, so on and so forth. Then in verse 23, he says, The hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So this emphasis is on worshiping the Father, on worshiping God and God alone. Now, I know this might be obvious to you. You're at a Christian college in a Christian seminary, 
but I want to state it. God alone is to be the recipient of our worship. God alone is to be the object of our worship. This is what God told the children of Israel, Exodus 23. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 24, you shall not bow down before an image or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I was stationed over in Japan. I was in the Marine Corps, and we would go out into the Japanese villages. We had uh, friends that lived in those villages, uh, Japanese nationals, and we would go and have meals with them and all these things. And I remember one time I went with one of my fellow officers to go visit this Japanese family. And this officer claimed to be a Christian. And we got into the, the hut where they lived and and they, had, uh, they do ancestral worship in Japan. And so they had some, some images essentially representing their ancestors. And they started to, to worship these images. And they invited us to take part in this worship. And I remember looking over, and the, the, the guy I was with literally started bowing down to these images. And I remember I just bumped him. I said, what are you doing? You can't be bowing down to that. And he said, Grant. If, I, if we don't bow down, we're going to offend them. It's going to be offensive to them. And I said, yeah, but if you bow down like you're doing, you're going to offend God. One of the stories that you need to know, especially you college students, seminary students that you need to be teaching your kids, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story. They... Come, they're in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar erects that huge statue of himself, and he calls all the people. He says, look, what you need to do is bow down to this statue. I mean, how easy could that be? Just bow down. They refuse to worship and bow down to the statue. So he brings them in. He says, look, I'm going to give you another opportunity. If you don't bow down, you're dead. You're dead. So what do they do? They go out, thousands upon thousands of people bowing down to the statue, and they stand there, and they refuse to bow down. They refuse to bow the knee. So they're thrown into the furnace, and God protects them. And the fourth figure, probably the angel of the Lord, was there with them, and they came out without a singe on their clothes or their bodies. That's the mentality that we have to have right now in this culture, that we will not bow the knee to anyone but God, because God and God alone is to be the object of our worship. Now, Jesus talks about the Father being the object of our worship, but he also says in John's gospel that he and the Father are what? One. So we also worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Who else do we worship? The Holy Trinity, right? Jesus says in in John 15 that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. We worship, Paul says in Philippians 3.3, by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. And so friends, we we have to regain Trinitarian worship where we worship God and God alone. At our church, we sing the doxology at the end of 
every single service. Why? Because we want to worship our triune God, all three persons of the Trinity, God and God alone. Let me say one other thing about this. I think the main problem, the chief problem in the Western church today is that we have made worship about ourselves and not God. Let me put it even more bluntly. We have essentially made an idol out of the experience of worship. Our preferences, our desires, our feelings. We even have a whole brand of churches called seeker-sensitive churches that design the worship service towards a particular audience and, and caters everything to reach a maximum audience. Now, we should be concerned about our audience, but who's our audience? God. We have an audience of one. And he's who we should be concerned about. And because we live in this environment where everything is so catered to our proclivities in worship, this is the air we breathe. And so I find myself going to worship. And if you look at your conversations after a worship service, what are you normally talking about? Oh, I, I like that song. Or I, I didn't like that background singer, or the drummer was too loud, or the preacher, this is at my church, the preacher went too long, couldn't land the plane properly. I wish you would tell more stories. I really like it if he tells me. So we talk about what we like about the worship. What's the first question we should be asking about the worship? Was God satisfied with the worship? We are so performance-driven in this country, in Western Christianity, where everything's on a time, and, and, and it looks nice, it sounds nice. People walk away feeling like they had maybe some type of emotional experience. But God is sitting in the heavens, shaking his head, not accepting much of the worship. Why? Because he looks at the heart. He says, look, if you're not bowing down to me and you're bowing down to you and what you like and you're not actually worshiping me, it doesn't count. I mean, this, and this is what David says in Psalm 51. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so, man, we've got to get this right. When we come to worship, it's not about you. It's about him. It's all about him. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as what? Living in holy sacrifices. Your seminary degree, it's not about you. It's about God. All of it is for him and to him, as Paul says. And God looks at the heart. We have to be careful about the idols in our lives. 
So that's the second principle, the object of our worship. And the third is the most important I'm going to give you. So we did the universality of worship, object of worship, and then the third is the mediator of worship. Most important. One of the things that the Jews talked about in worship is that you have to be pure before God in worship. That God will not accept your worship if you have dirty hands. Right? So Psalm 24, Psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So in other words, you have to worship the one true God, our triune God. You have to bow down to him, and you also have to worship him with sinless, clean hands. Otherwise, God will not accept your worship. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem for each and every one of us we're all sinners. So how does God accept our worship? Through a mediator. And that's what Jesus is talking about over and over in this passage. Look at verse 20. Or verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's he talking about? He's saying no longer will you need to go through a priest in Jerusalem to worship God. Remember the temple veil tore when Jesus was on the cross? Jerusalem was ended as the place of worship. Why? Because now Jesus is the place of worship. He's now the mediator. You don't have to go to the temple now. You go to Christ and through Christ for God to receive our worship. Then look at verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here. It's here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father and in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is ushering in this this new period where we worship in spirit and in truth. Who's the truth? Jesus is. He's, He's incarnate truth. We worship in him and through him. He says, for the Father seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus is claiming, look, I am this mediator who is going to change everything about worship. So now you come to me for it to be acceptable before God. And that's why the woman asks in verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I'm I'm the Messiah. I'm the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. I'm the mediator who was promised to come. One real quick cross-reference I want you to turn to. Turn uh, all the way to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's two texts that primarily speak to Jesus as the mediator of our worship. One is Hebrews chapter 10, and the other is here in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. So just verses 4 and 5. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What do priests do? They give worship to God. To look, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now look at this acceptable to God. So God can receive our worship. How? 
Look at that last prepositional phrase, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. His atoning work on the cross cleanses us of all of our sin so that, and this is the end point, we don't just stop with the forgiveness of sins. The Christian life goes on to worship so that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. Here's the implication of this. All other worship outside of the mediator is rejected. All of it. All of Paul's worship before he met Christ on the Damascus Road, all of it, what does he say? It's for nothing. Martin Luther, living all those years as a, as a Catholic monk, going to Rome and scaling the stairs on his knees, it's for nothing if it's not through the mediator. The Jews right now at the Welling Wall in Jerusalem, it's not accepted. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So every evangelism conversation you have is a conversation ultimately about true worship. And friends, my passion and my heart and what I want you to walk away with is, is to live your life for this, to de dedicate your life to the true worship of God, to recover real and authentic worship. And, and one of the things I love about this text in John 4 is Jesus is talking about himself being the mediator. Whenever you rediscover true worship, there's always a rediscovery of the cross and the gospel, always. Because you can't have true worship without it. You just can't. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you for your word, which is so clear on this. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be dedicated to what really matters, which is the worship of our triune God. This is why you saved us. You were seeking us out. You were seeking worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, our prayer is to to dedicate our lives to this, to look to you in worship and to call other people to be worshipers of you and to enter in this life of worship that is so great and so magnificent that you've called us into. In Christ's name we pray, amen.